Hello and welcome to the Heart Podcast. My name is Dr. James Rudd. I'm the Digital Media Editor at Heart. And today on the Heart Podcast, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Dana Dawson from Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. Dana has a clinical and a research interest in stress-induced cardiomyopathy, and we get deep into this topic over the next 20 minutes. I hope you enjoy the interview. So perhaps, Dana, we could start off by you telling us what uh, you mean by acute stress-induced cardiomyopathy. We refer to it scientifically as acute stress-induced cardiomyopathy or Takatsubo disease or Takatsubo syndrome. Um, And it's also known in more layman terms as broken heart disease. Um, It's a condition that mimics a heart attack in short, but it's not a heart attack. Uh, We don't know that when patients arrive to us and patients also suspect that they have a heart attack. And it's only after we do a few first investigations that we figure out that their heart arteries are normal, but their heart muscle doesn't function as well as it should do. In fact, it's more than that, maybe, because the heart takes the shape of an octopus trapping pot, which the, the, uh, the Japanese fishermen um, usually place on the seabed in order to trap the octopus. And this is called a takatsubo in Japanese. And this is why we call this disease takatsubo disease as well. Okay, so the patient presents with symptoms consistent with a heart attack, but then, as you say, the coronary arteries are normal or generally normal and there's this odd ballooning pattern uh, when we look at the ventricle. That's right. Yes, it's a it's a really distinctive shape that the heart takes. It's indistinguish. It's it's really you can't confuse it with anything else in the classical form of disease. Of course, there are different subtypes, different forms, and um, less obvious forms have been described recently. But the classical one, where the, the heart takes that shape of a balloon, as you just rightly said, it, it cannot be mistaken for, for much else. And do we know how common the syndrome is? We thought it was rare. A few years ago, we thought it was rare. And if you look into it in a bit more detail and if you tune your senses, your diagnostic senses uh, to thinking about it more when you see these people acutely, you will find out that you will diagnose more and more. So we've looked at the incidence of this condition in our institution and bear in mind that we do have a research interest here so the whole department is thinking about it perhaps a lot more than in other places in the world. Uh, and when we when we drew up the numbers um, from 2010 to 2015, I think it represented six to seven percent of all the presumed in inverted commas presumed heart attacks that were coming through the department through the cardiology department. So we're talking about only the ones that were presented through cardiology. We we didn't go to look elsewhere. We didn't go to look in ITU. We didn't go to look in the neuro wards. It was only what was coming to us. So around 7% of the uh, presumed heart attacks, presumed myocardial infarctions, actually turned out to have stress-induced cardiomyopathy in your That's institution. Right. Okay. That's right, yeah. And um, what kind of triggers uh, are recognized in the literature as causing this? Oh, there's as many as you can think of, really. Mm. Um, there's all sorts of emotional triggers. Um, most people that we see have emotional triggers because we haven't focused that much on the physical triggers in, in our home institution. That's not to say that perhaps other people see more physical triggers because this is what they look into. 
we had a more passive approach and waited to see what was coming to us in cardiology. So that's why we saw more emotional triggers. Um, but we saw all sorts of things, you know, um, the bereavement is the classical one. So loss of a loved one. Um, but anything else from conflict, argument, you know, public speaking, divorce, financial, bad news from a financial point of view, bad news of any kind, work stress, and not necessarily um, an acute trigger that people can actually think of straight away, but even more protracted stress and hardship, like being the carer for a very ill relative for the past year or so. And, you know, things are accumulating slowly and people feel the, the, stre the daily stress just on, on the top of, of one day onto another and it just accumulates and then suddenly they develop this. It's just like something, the straw that kills the camel's back, whatever that is in, in their, in their in, internal thinking, in their brain, one day that happens. And they can't identify something specific but a more protracted long period of stress that will have led to that. But there are physical triggers as well, as I mentioned. So any other medical condition that somebody can present with to hospital is actually being described to have caused Takatsuba as well, or treatments that we give to people as well. And uh, beta-adrenergic drugs are actually the, the, the classical ones, uh, but others as well. It's fascinating, isn't it? We're finding more and more causes. And there's a, a very nice table, a list in your, in your review where you, uh, you go into this in some detail, and some of them really surprise me. Um, in terms of diagnosis, Dana, the, you mentioned the European Task Force algorithm, uh, which has recently been published. Uh, but one thing that caught my eye was that the ECG uh, can sometimes be normal. You say about 11% of the time people have a normal ECG. Are there any others or any specific ECG patterns or biomarker patterns that are helpful? Or is it really difficult before you get to the angiogram and the uh, uh, imaging of the LV? Well, it's very interesting. I think that uh, Takatsubo or acute stress-induced cardiomyopathy remains a diagnosis of exclusion. Okay. And it will probably stay like that for a while to come because there isn't anything that actually pinpoints specifically to, to that until you actually see that very nice picture of the LV-gram once it's done. That is the first thing together with the unobstructed coronaries that make people think about that. You can suspect it in a patient from the way they present. If they if they come forward to you with um, declaring that they've got a stress and but you know how specific ECG signs can be uh, to obviate or to preclude the need for emergency angiography in somebody who, who, who is there in front of your eyes with chest pain and acute ST elevation None of us would uh, go back from from performing a coronary angiogram at that time. So um, there are no specific pointers to that before before you you sum up a certain a certain sum of elements and that points to Takatsubo. If you see what I mean. So yes, the ECG can be normal. We've seen normal ECGs. It's not the commonest presentation, but we have seen them. Usually those normal ECGs pair up with um, less ballooning um, of the left ventricle. And I suppose that if you want to draw a parallel with a myocardial infarction that presents with a normal ECG, we know that a number of inferoposterior MIs can present with normal ECGs as well. So it's perhaps, you know, an analogy with that. The ECG can be 
either ST elevation or um, non-specific uh, ST T wave changes uh, or left bundle branch block, or some people actually present with uh, various degrees of heart block um, as well. So it, it's it's such an overlap with what we see uh, with MI presentations that you, you, you cannot really reliably distinguish distinguish the two. There have been attempts in trying to to see uh, about the spread of the ST elevation or the magnitude of ST elevation. And perhaps there is a little bit less ST elevation in terms of, of um, amplitude of ST segments in Takatsubo compared to MI. But on an individual uh, basis, when you see a specific patient, you won't be able to tell this is more or less than two or two and a half millimeters. Therefore, it's going to be Takatsuba or it's going to be an MI. It's not as specific as that. Okay. And, and biomarkers presumably uh, have the same issue with such a huge overlap with type 1 myocardial infarction. There is an overlap, although again, uh, in in Takatsubo, you will have a lot less um, a, a biomarker release, and there is a, a, a disproportionate, uh, a disproportionately low amount of troponin leak compared to the uh, sizable wall motion abnormality when you when you compare them to one another, but. Again, this is not something that you can figure out straight away in an individual patient. You will look at the ECG and you will perhaps look at an echocardiogram if you're lucky enough to have had it as, as quickly. Um, and you will look at the troponin and you'll think, well, perhaps the troponin is a bit less. But that in itself won't make you be as confident as to say, well, I'm not going to send this patient to the cath lab because they're going to have normal coronary arteries and this is going to be Takatsuba. You can't do that. You're still going to go and do a coronary angiogram. And that's when uh, the, the certainty is going to come from where you have all these things together as a whole to make the diagnosis. And do we know anything about the underlying pathology that causes this unusual appearance of the ventricle? Is this a catecholamine mediated disease or can you give us any insights into that it's very interesting uh you you've you've touched the very point i think in this um the catecholamine um hypothesis is definitely the most accepted one today uh, and there are some pointers in this direction and there are some experimental models uh, that have uh, tried to to emulate the human condition in this regard we know that catecholamines are elevated, um, as reported by some studies in this condition. Uh, in other studies, they weren't found to be quite as elevated, but they are also elevated in myocardial infarction too, because that is a stress as well. And of course, the two conditions, may I draw a parallel here, could coexist, mm. of course, you know, and a myocardial infarction is probably one of the biggest stressors that can happen to an individual. Uh, and yet, we're not actually able to tell if somebody's had uh, both of these together at any one time. Uh, but anyway, to, to, to go back to your initial question, yes, catecholamines are definitely implicated and they are the most accepted theory. Um, there could be other things. And of course, here we need to touch into the predisposition to the condition in order to speak about other things. We know that it happens much more commonly in women. We know that uh, the ratio of women to men that develop this condition is nine to one. Therefore, it's quite logical to, to speculate that there could be um, an, an endocrine element to it. There could be, of course, a neurological element to it. And there are some pointers in this direction, too. Um, in fact, quite recent uh, that have shown that uh, perhaps patients 
who developed Takatsubo in the past um, have slightly different functional magnetic resonance imaging of their brains. And we also know that there is a higher incidence of mental health diseases in these patients as well. Um, so there are some some pointers uh, which are research leads, which are avenues to follow and to look into in the future. I don't think we have anything that we can be completely certain about at the moment. And we know that the syndrome can recur after an initial resolution. Are there any treatments that have been shown to reduce this chance of recurrence? We know it can recur, and interestingly enough, in those people that uh, it recurred into, the stressor can be completely different, or in fact, it always is completely different, and the the area of ballooning can be different as well. So if somebody had apical disease, uh, apical ballooning uh, in their first episode, they can actually pre-present with mid-ventricular ballooning at a, sec- at a second occurrence. That is, to me, that is very fascinating. Mm, that absolutely. is very interesting because it says, it, it, it tells me that whatever was in the ventricle that caused that, it's, it's not just dependent on the ventricle alone. You know, if there was a certain distribution of receptors, say, in the ventricle, I think we're quite right to speculate and assume that that wouldn't have changed uh, in in time, um, you know, in, in the morphology of that particular individual. I don't think that can happen quite as quickly. But, of course, this is something that needs to be looked into and uh, and investigated. And in terms of individual therapies, I mean, in the acute phase, presumably supportive care? Yes, definitely. So it, it depends very much on the clinical course of, of each individual. So um, if patients are unfortunate enough to develop uh, really severe left ventricular dysfunction acutely and cardiogenic shock, then we need to support them through that with all the means and ways that we are doing in any other type of acute heart failure. But in terms of preventing recurrences, there isn't really anything, there is no medicine that we know that is capable to prevent recurrences or to mitigate the symptoms that these patients, some of these patients at least, continue to develop uh, after they will have recovered from the acute episode. Uh, there have been some studies looking at the ability of beta blockers to, to prevent recurrences, but this is registry data coming from Japan, I think, from the whole of Japan. Um, and, and it didn't seem that beta blockers were actually helpful in preventing recurrences. Of course, this is not a randomized control study, so until that is going to be done, we are not going to have a definitive answer. And because the rate of recurrence is only 10 to 15 percent, it's probably going to require quite a large study to actually be able to definitively have an answer to this question. And uh, what are the other unresolved or uh, interesting active research areas, Dana? Well, um, we've we've actually looked a lot uh, here in this centre. We've actually looked a lot at what happens uh, in in the in the early and uh, medium term recovery pathways in the ventricle. So, what kind of pathophysiology happens in 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 the immediate post Takatsubo ventricle, if you like? Um, we're looking at several things. We're looking at the um, inflammatory response in these hearts. We're looking at the metabolic responses uh, in these hearts as well. well. I haven't got any answers for you today because these are studies that are ongoing and we, we haven't we haven't finished them, so we haven't got the the data to 
to even have an inkling of what they may show. But these are two avenues of research that we've launched ourselves into because of two previous observations that uh, that that we made on on our previous cohort. We've seen in one of our previous cohorts that the cardiac energetics of these patients was extremely reduced in the acute setting. In fact, the numbers show that it was more reduced than in any other cardiomyopathy that we've ever looked at. And that there was some recovery. At four months, we re-examined these patients and there was a degree of recovery uh, somewhere halfway between the acute state of events and a normal healthy control. Uh, so it, it didn't actually go back at four months as, as we, we assumed it would do. This is why we left it for four months. We assumed that the, if the left ventricular ejection fraction was back in most of these patients, this is what the wisdom was at that time. We're talking 2014, 2015, or even earlier than that. And we thought we're going to find that the energetics go back to normal. That's why we compared it with normal healthy controls. And to our surprise, it didn't. Interesting. So presumably that suggests that the, the those patients who where it doesn't go back perhaps are at higher risk of recurrence or I guess that's an open question it is an open question and of course we are not in a position to be able to tell from any of these studies whether the energetics were normal in these patients to begin with uh, we, we don't know that and I don't think we will ever know this uh, so we must assume that if they have some ability to recover. Obviously, they do have some reserve, some metabolic reserve from that point of view, but they weren't able to recover fully. So the question is, will they be able to recover fully? Or is, is that an intermediate process of recovery? We've examined a bit too early. Or is that capacity of recovery completely exhausted? And this is how it will remain forever. And of course, the question is, were they like that perhaps before they developed Takatsuba? And that's why they developed Takatsuba. So all, all these are questions that we don't know the answer to. Fascinating. And uh, uh, I will also, uh, in the show notes, uh, point to some of your other research papers in this area. And I can I can see why you're uh, interested. This is, a, as you say, a pretty common disease, probably more common than we recognize with lots of unanswered questions so Dana uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the podcast thank you very much Dana.